This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. Hey podcast listeners, this is your host, Andy Hale. We are thrilled to bring you another year of CBF's podcast with a cavalcade of brilliant guests such as Father Tom Reese, Washington Post's Sarah Pulliam Bailey, Mark Charles, Soong Chen Ra, and Matthew Paul Turner. And that's just skimming the surface of the first few months. As you know, last fall, we launched the Podcast Listener Support Project. This is an opportunity for you to connect closer with the podcast and premier guest. By becoming a podcast supporter, you can join me on an interview with premier guests such as Walter Brueggemann, Sarah Bessie, and Brian McLaren. So check out cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guests for this week's CBF podcast conversation are Catherine Meeks and Nib Stroop. They are co-authors of a book entitled Passionate for Justice. Catherine Nibs, thank you for joining the conversation. Glad to be here. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting us. Now, before we get to this fascinating book, let's get to know you a little better. Catherine, let's start with you. Um, you're retired from the Wesleyan College as a distinguished professor of sociocultural studies and the director of Absalom Jones Center for, for Racial Healing. So walk us through your career um, with these two institutions. Well, I'm retired from Wesleyan. I'm working full-time for the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing, which has come as a new um, initiative here in my retirement space, so-called retirement. (laughs) Uh, I I have been in the academic world all all of my work life, uh, significant work life anyway. Uh, I was at Mercer University uh, as a professor in African-American studies and women's studies for 25 years. And then I was invited to Wesleyan College to take an endowed chair where I served for nine years before I retired in sociocultural studies. But 
the main and most important thread is that all of my life since, I guess, um, college has been about being involved in social justice work around racial healing. And so I've got this, what I call a 50-year history of being on this path. And even though I've taught as an academic and now I'm a, a teacher, administrator, fundraiser, all kinds of things for the Absalom Jones Center, the, the, the vocational thread is that one about working for racial justice and racial healing in my community and also in the country. So take us a little deeper into, you know, the practical work of, of this center and, and how, um, you know, churches and individuals can get involved with it. Mm. Well, it's the um, Absalom Jones Episcopal Center for Racial Healing, which is uh, funded by donations and support from the Episcopal Church. And we're mandated to be a resource for the entire Episcopal Church, which is all of the, all of the United States and 11 countries. And so that's our primary focus, but we are open to anybody seeking our resources. We don't turn anybody away. It's, that's just our focus. And, you know, one has to have some sense of who your constituency is uh, to, to function properly. We have worked with uh, people from other faiths and people from with no faith uh, necessarily that um, around these issues because we're just we're so committed to trying to help anybody who's trying to address racial racism and trying to get on the path toward racial healing and reconciliation. Now you've authored quite a few books. Um, as somebody who hasn't written a single book, I'm always fascinated by anybody who has mm -hmm. written one. So uh, how did you find that, that writing, um, was an outlet for you to express some of your uh, philosophical and theological convictions? Well, I've, I've been interested in writing, I guess, most of my life. And I've kept a journal for, um, for decades now, and pretty faithfully, I've got boxes and boxes of journals. Uh, it, it's, so writing has just been one of my ways of processing things and making sense out of the world that didn't always make sense to me. And I started with writing my own story, writing an autobiography called I Want Somebody to Know My Name, which was quite a wonderful cathartic experience to get to put down a lot of those thoughts about my own journey. And then the last book that I edited before the Wells book uh, was Living into God's Dream, uh, Dismantling Racism in America. It's a collection of essays with uh, seven other writers and that book was so important to me because I wanted to try to help create a conversation around race that could be helpful to people. And I've gotten amazing feedback from folks that that has been the case. And then, of course, we wrote the Wells book with that idea in mind, too, of making it easy for people to get into a conversation about race, because that seems to be one of the primary questions that people have is how do you start the conversation? All of my writing, I think, has been about trying to um, help people have ways to have conversations about things that are important and not always easy to get started on. So I write about race and justice and all of that, but also write about healing in general. 
because I think that racial healing and healing in general are incredibly interconnected. Well, Nibs, let's turn to you. Um, you uh, recently retired um, as the pastor of Oakhurst Presbyterian Church, right around the corner from our offices in Decatur. Right. Um, tell us a little bit more about you. Well, uh, Catherine and I both grew up in the belly of the beast in uh, rural Arkansas. Uh, I grew up on the Mississippi River, um, and I uh, breathed in uh, white supremacy. Uh, Catherine breathed it in, but from a different, uh, had a great filters against it, which I did not. So most of my journey has been trying to find healing and a different point of view uh, from that. Uh, as I began to go to college and get out of that, uh, I began to change. Uh, my wife, Caroline Leach, and I were co-pastors uh, of Oakhurst Presbyterian Church for about 35 years. And Oakhurst is a multiracial church uh, created in its current form by white flight, uh, you know, as white folk don't like, don't believe we can have a life with people of color in the neighborhood. So a 900 church kind of shrank down to a 90 member church in about 15 years. Um, and over that period, we helped build it up and all, uh, God helped build it up and the members helped build it up. So out of that, I just learned so much about how much racism continues to have a hold on my heart and how much conscious a difficult work I have to do, but uh, like anything, that difficult work produces great fruits in the sense that I see my life in a whole different way than I did when I, I was growing up and learning white supremacy. It's still still got some power in there. I still It pops up, but it shows how powerful it is, but I'm grateful to Catherine for being in this uh, dialogue and especially for her ongoing work on all of these issues, which I do some, but she's she's full-time retired. I mean, I'm full-time retired. She's retired and full-time working, and I appreciate her work. You've also written a good bit yourself, um, authoring um, four books and written for multiple outlets, including The Atlantic. Um, you know, some people use their words by speaking, others uh, by writing. So uh, why, why writing for you? Well, I'm like Catherine. I, I've I've learned a lot from writing, uh, and I, I'm both. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm ashamed to admit I met my first black person in a book, as we t I talk about in the Wells book. Uh, I saw black people all of my life growing up, but I didn't think they were human beings like me. And a book called uh, "Cry the Beloved Country," which Alan Payton wrote in 1948 about apartheid, I read. I met a black minister there who. Uh, uh, it was the first time I can remember thinking, gosh, I wonder if they're like, if black people are like me. Uh, and so that, so uh, writing has been very, reading and writing have been very powerful instruments in my life. I, I like to preach too, so I like the verbal and the, the written, but I love uh, words and putting stuff together and uh, both inspiring and challenging people. So uh, I've really enjoyed the books. I'll, I, 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 I write a lot now. That's one of the great things about retiring for the church. No meetings, more time to write. So it's good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, you both have done uh, significant work in writing on uh, social justice. Um, how did this become part of a, a calling for you? Uh, Catherine, let's start with you. Well, I, as Nibs just said, we grew up in Arkansas with the, the separation that was so prevalent. And there has always been a sense in my soul that it was not right for me not to be able to go where I wanted to go and do what I wanted to do. But as a kid, you don't, you know, you just have that sense. You don't even know how to name it. 
but I've I've been a resistor to segregation most of my life. And as a teenager, I used to refuse to sit down in the doctor's office because the waiting rooms were separate. And we had little dingy hallway waiting rooms with a little row of chairs and a couple of light bulbs when white people had nice rooms with lamps and couches. So I, I, I just wouldn't sit down. Now, when you're a child, I, I mean, I was a teenager, but when you're a teenager and you do that, because something in you says something's not right here and I can't participate in it, but you can't talk about it because had I told my mother what I was doing, she would have been horrified. And I don't even know myself completely what I was doing. I knew something wasn't right and I needed to just stand up. And that's what I've been doing all of my life, just standing up for the things that I believe to be right. God put everybody on the earth to, and, and God made us all and we're all equal and we, and in God's eyesight and nobody has the right to make another person, uh, to, to infringe upon another person's freedom. And so whenever I have encountered any of that, both in academia and in the church and, and just the world in general, I have resisted it. So I've been a resistor for a long, long time. It just has been in my later years that I've gotten the sophisticated language to name it all, but in, in my soul, it's always been there. You know, as you think uh, around, um, you know, social justice, it certainly is something that uh, for many people, um, unless their eyes are open to it, they don't necessarily see the issues around them today. So I, I know mm -hmm. it seems, I know it seems silly, especially for those of us who do see it. Um, but Nibs, I wonder if you would walk us through the most challenging social justice issues our culture is facing today. Yeah, I, I grew up... Uh learning racism really and sexism all, all the powers that are oppressive uh, from really good white people including my family uh, so that it's got deeply in, into my soul um, uh, they also taught me the love of god at my church and that has been very powerful and i remember uh, the split um, that i discovered um, about slavery and neo-slavery uh, that if you were a Christian, you didn't worry about that kind of stuff. And once I learned and saw a different world, it was really astonishing to me. So most of my uh, ministry has been trying to weave back spirituality and justice together so I don't have to be ashamed of the gospel um, because I think the gospel is about making individuals and the culture whole. So I think uh, uh, what we have now is just a powerful resurgence of those kinds of powers, especially racism and sexism and economic power trying to oppress people. And I think um, Donald Trump is an expression of that. I don't think he's the cause of it. He's just an expression of something that's been in us as a people since the Europeans arrived on, on this land. So I think in that sense, it's, it's always tough work. We have made progress, uh, undoubtedly, but I think we're in a time now where uh, white folk and men especially and people with money need to understand our captivity and begin to open ourselves to try to find liberation from those and my journey continues on that um, trying to find liberation and find out who i am as a child of god so most of my journey has been trying to recover the gospel i guess in a way that 
uh, justice and spirituality can be woven together. It was split apart by white supremacists who wanted to hold people as slaves and call ourselves Christians. And it's really difficult in American Christianity to get those back together. So I think that's always an issue where whatever generation you are, that's always an issue in American Christian history and American religious history. I guess as as we think around uh, social justice, for many churches, it seems like such a um, it could be a challenging thing for them to navigate of how they can get involved in a practical way. So, Catherine, um, what can churches do to be a part of making a difference in their community, and, and what does that practically look like? Well, I think the most important thing people can do first is to try to really have some self awareness and consciousness about the way things are constructed and how they benefit from it or participate in it and all of that. So self-knowledge is, is really critical to start with. And, and I think that too many times, um, white churches anyway, predominantly white churches, wanna go out in the community to do something without doing that first piece, which I think is waking up and learning and, and owning up to the way the systems are constructed and how white people benefit from it without even kind of knowing that sometimes or, or knowing it and not owning it and just kind of feeling like, well, this is reality. It doesn't, it's not wrong. It's just the way it is. And I think some people actually go far enough to think that God set this up this way. And that, that to me is really hard. So, so waking up, developing consciousness, learning something, asking hard questions, being willing to interrogate yourself and, and the stories that you tell yourself and, and how you are thinking and living is a, first, is a big first step in my mind. And, and then once you start that process and get into it, it becomes impossible not to do something. Because, you, you know, when you wake up to some new truth, unless you're just a totally dishonest person, you've got to go do something. And then I think people need to be very prayerful in trying to discern what they need to do. Because typically what happens, somebody white discovers, for I don't know, the first time maybe, or lets themselves own up to how things really are, and they're horrified about it. And they, the first thing they want to do is go into a black community or a poor community and start doing something. But they go in without having done the, the preliminary work and the proper discernment. And so it doesn't last long because you get burnt out really quickly if you're not really doing what you've been called to do. So I want to encourage churches to really be diligent and intentional about thinking about what they need to do. And so you start inside the church house and then you work your way to the outside, into the community. Hmm. Nibs, what gives you hope in the cause of, of social justice? You know, it, it's one of those things where, I, and I find myself, um, where I, I see us making progress, but progress is, is so slow. Um, and sometimes that can, be, uh, a, that can be defeating. So what's giving you hope um, and the cause of social justice today? Well, I'm a Calvinist, so that helps me on that level. I, you know, I don't think pr progress is ever going to be uh, happen greatly. I think when Barack Obama was elected president, there was a fair amount of white people 
uh, that felt like, gosh, we're getting over racism now. I, I never thought that. I think what gets me hope is that there are always a core of witnesses and workers who uh, hear the word of God uh, and seek to live it out uh, in ways that combine spirituality and justice. Uh, and and we've, I think I agree with Catherine. I think the first thing for those of us who are classified as white is recognition. We have to recognize that all of us who are classified as white have this in us um, and that we need to deal with it. So I grew up with this stuff. I think if I can come to terms with uh, having it in me and trying to find ways to find liberation in life than just about anybody can. I wasn't mean growing up. My mother wouldn't allow that, but um, I, I definitely had this stuff deep in me. And in, this, in our Wells book, I have a chapter where I list seven steps for white folk uh, to do to try to understand uh, what's going on in our lives with race. Um, and I think younger folk have made some progress. I think uh, in terms of uh, racial stuff, I think younger folk generally see the world in a multicultural way uh, rather than just a white way. Um, but there's always those powerful forces that we're seeing right now at the forefront that are trying to uh, push things back so that white males are seen as supreme again. So, so what gives me hope really is what is really Jesus and uh, the response to Jesus. I mean, Jesus was a uh, an oppressed person. He was uh, at any time could be uh, locked up uh, for not being a Roman citizen. And his, his goal was to teach people who did not have any power or find themselves siding with those not having power to find life and to find power. So I think that, for me, is always uh, the case. And I think the other thing is to recognize that from the beginning of European history and American history in this country, we have been captured by race and other powers, but race has been a central part and that that's going to take a long, hard struggle. Uh, but the goal is great. I mean, to find a new life is like having your eyes open. And as Catherine said, once you have your eyes open, you can find ways to begin to live it out. It, it's taken me, it still does take me a long time to find out what's authentic and especially to, to be able to listen to those. I think one reason is we white folk run to black communities or other communities once we get our eyes open is that we do want to listen and find out a di different narrative. Uh, we are uh, trying to find out uh, what's going on. The, the problem is we don't often really listen. But I think um, just the number of folk who are committed to seeking this work for justice gives me hope. Now, before we get to the actual book, tell us um, how y'all came together and, and began to work on this project. Catherine? Well, Nibs and I met at the um, open door community, which which um, is a community that offers hospitality to homeless people and people who are imprisoned and on death row. And they had a Sunday worship service every Sunday afternoon at four. And Nibs was one of the preachers, and and we met there, and we got into talking about Ida B. Wells. Nibs told me how much he loved Ida B. Wells, and we and I always wanted to write about her, but just kind of kept pushing it to the edge of the, the, the page and didn't get to it. And so we started some conversations about Ida B. Wells and the possibility of writing about her. And I, I don't know, it took us a good bit of time of having those conversations because I was also starting this new job with the center and I did not know that, that I even could have time enough to write anything. So. But that's how we got together, and 
it's very fascinating that we grew up within 30 miles of each other in Arkansas and met each other in Georgia and then ended up doing this book on Ida B. Wells together. It's been, it's been really delightful. Yes, I knew Catherine. Uh, I, met, I knew Catherine first through her writings. I guess not surprising. Through, uh, and Sojourners magazine, she uh, wrote for them, wrote some articles for them. So I met her through there. I didn't meet her face to face until the open door, uh, as she said. And I've been wanting to do something on Ida Wells for a long time. As Catherine indicated, I'm a big fan of hers. Uh, part of that is she grew up in the same county as all my forebears uh, in Mississippi. Uh, so I've been wanting to do something for a long time. Um, I was cautioned by many of our African-American women, especially at Oakhurst, uh, that uh, I, as a white person, could not write a book on Ida Wells by myself, uh, which was good advice. So I was glad uh, to meet Catherine. And then, as she said, we began some conversations on Ida Wells. And once I learned of her interest, I, I guess I kind of bugged her a lot. I wouldn't leave her alone. Uh, uh, she said she didn't think she had time to do it. I'm sure she had to squeeze around, but it was, it's was it been a great journey and a great learning for me and to get um, Ida Wells uh, out into uh, more of the public eye. I mean, she's already coming out in the public eye, which is great. And I think she'll come out even more this year because she was so involved in getting the 19th Amendment on the books and uh, getting passed. So it's been a great journey to work on this with Catherine. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. So the book is Passion for Justice, Ida B. Wells as, uh, as a Prophet of Our Time. This, uh, this book centers on the life of Ida B. Wells, a former slave born in the 1860s that leveraged a career into investigative journalism to combat racial injustice and promote the cause of women's suffrage. Um, you wrote, uh, Ida is still speaking in a voice that is more powerful than ever. She held the paradox in her hands and her heart. She lived in a world of affluence and never let herself forget those with nothing. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that Ida B. Wells is a household name. So, so why her story? Uh, Catherine, let's start with you. Well, I've taught her uh, as part of my work as a professor and her um, courage and commitment are elements that I think we could stand to recover some in this in this era. And I I also got really involved in looking into remembering people who were lynched in in Georgia and we we have now honored all of the 600 and something people who were lynched in our state by placing markers around in different cities to remember them. So her work around lynching which is you know, you're not this. Not everybody is ready to take up that work. 
but she took it up with such courageousness. And it's and then whatever she was speaking about or wherever she was speaking against injustice, there was this courage, this passion, this um, fearlessness, and a willingness to to risk things that that most people aren't willing to risk, which is why they don't do that kind of thing. And I just feel like that this person, this historical person, is somebody whose voice still speaks very loudly. And and what she's saying is something that we all need to be paying attention to in the 21st century. People need to be trying to find out what they want and need to be passionate about, because it's not going to be the same thing for everybody, of course. So I I believe because of her, what, that that her courage and tenacity, that that those are values that we could hold up higher, and also feel like that that's a universal kind of necessity in order for people to do what they were put on the earth to do. I do believe that everybody's been sent here with a purpose to do something, and your job is to find out what that is. And she found that out. She knew that from when she was 16, taking on taking care of her siblings after her parents died in the yellow fever epidemic all the way to the rest through the rest of her life. She just boldly went where she thought she needed to go. And I just can't ever stop being grateful for that. We ultimately want people to go out and purchase the book, but to kind of help give a context for our conversation about her, um, Nibs, give us a, a snapshot of, of her life and her work. Okay, uh, uh, Catherine, she was born, uh, as you said, in the 1860s. Uh, she was a little girl when slavery ended, um, and she grew up in Reconstruction where there was just a little tiny flame of uh, a sense that African Americans were human beings. That didn't last very long, but she got enough of that from her parents and the people around her to, uh, it was deep down in her soul. And as Catherine said, her parents died and she raised her siblings and uh, took charge of them and was a teacher. And uh, her, her first big uh, accomplishment, I think, from our point of view, looking back, many accomplishments, but was in 1884, she refused to uh, give up her seat in a segregated car on uh, a train in Tennessee. And uh, the conductor wanted to get her off and tried to get her off, and she bit his hand. So she was not nonviolent. Uh, they threw her off the train, and she sued and won in, in, the, in the district court. It was overturned later on in the Tennessee Supreme Court. But that was 70 years before Rosa Parks and all of that, and we appreciate Rosa Parks. But she was uh, working on that early on. Uh, and she also was a journalist. She was a teacher supporting her family and a journalist uh, and moved to Memphis to uh, get more money as a teacher and uh, discovered her love for journalism and uh, issues. In 1892, one of her good friends was lynched, along with a couple of other men uh, in Memphis, because they were running a grocery store in a black neighborhood that was competing against a white grocery store. And that really, I think, was the spark that set her off to get her different vision. For, for me, it's like uh, King being elected to the Montgomery Improvement Association presidency. From then on, his vision just expanded and went everywhere, and Ida Wells did also. So she did this extensive study of lynching and published the results indicating that the cause for lynching was not black men wanting white women, but white people, especially white men, wanting to terrorize and dominate black people. 
And it was so incendiary that the people in Memphis blew up her offices and put a price on her head. So she was exiled from from then on uh, up to the north. So she came back in 1920 uh, to our to my home county to investigate a huge mass lynching. But in between, she she was uh, just a visionary with a great prophetic imagination. She would simply not be quiet. She would not let go. Uh, she was both so strong on race, so strong on women's rights. One of the reasons she almost was forgotten, I think, is that black men were, uh, most black men were really uh, threatened by her because she she said it was as important for w black women to get rights as women as it was for all black people to get rights as black people. Uh, she helped found the NAACP uh, during the great migrations to Chicago. She uh, open uh, clubs and places for uh, men and women to come and get uh, acculturated and help find jobs. She started was in on the women's black women's club movement. She worked so hard for uh, the 19th Amendment and women's rights. Uh, she just was everywhere. And um, I guess I'm astonished by her singular vision, not just on race, but just kind of a sense of looking for justice and having that uh, antenna and that sensitivity to perceive it and to speak up about it and to not be quiet. She would not step back. And mm -hmm. so that hurt her reputation, but it also is such a fierce witness uh, that we need today, I think. Catherine, uh, walk us through some of the institutional and social groups of opposition that Ida faced, and in turn, where where might we see their contemporaries today? Well, do you mean in terms of when she was trying to be involved in things like the NAACP? I mean, yeah, um, you know, walking through, you know, you, you, you kind of look at, um, I guess for me, when I look back on the circumstances of her birth and her young adult life, it seems virtually insurmountable for someone to become um, who she became and what she was able to accomplish. And so I wonder you know, to build the framework around what she actually had to face from an institutional standpoint. Um, and then, you know, also the social groups, um, as we talked mm -hmm. about, you know, those that were, you know, systematically um, lynching African Americans, um, in mm -hmm. you know, specifically in Mississippi, as we look back, um, you know, so, so what were some of those uh, clear oppositional groups and institutions she was facing? And, and, and what are their contemporaries today? Well, the NAACP comes to mind just right off the bat because she was one of the founders. But you don't, when you study that piece of history, her name doesn't come up too, too much on the forefront because of the sexism of Black men. And so she had to deal with sexism from Black men, and then she had to deal with racism from white people, men and women, and then uh, Black women... Uh, like in, even in the, the women's club movement and all of that, feeling like she was a little more radical than they were because, you know, not everybody was ready to go stand up against lynching and have the kind of uh, voice that was so inclusive that she had because people are so good about picking a, a, a piece of what they want to stand up against in terms of justice and injustice and then leaving other things out. She didn't do that. So it made her, when she married uh, Mr. Barnett, it made, you know, she could have just gone and been this kind of middle-class housewife that didn't have to keep on ruffling people's feathers, but she didn't choose to do that. So women, even in the women's club movement, 
would have angst against her because she wasn't like them, really. And then, of course, the men didn't like her because she wasn't, she was who she is and who she was. And so, and, and we still have those same kind of dynamics in terms of sexism in the black community or the brown community that wants to tell black women what they can and cannot do. And then white uh, people with their racism and, and in the women's movement, you know, she was involved with Susan Anthony and all those women who wanted to be pro uh, progressive when it came to women, but didn't, were not capable or didn't do, maybe they were capable that they just didn't do it, deal with their racism. And we still have that same issue between black women and, and, and other women of color and white women in terms of the women's rights organizations. I mean, that, there's just a, a lot of that stuff still going on. Mm. I, I, I want to add in, I think uh, the folks that gathered on the, uh, the grounds of the uh, Richmond and the Virginia Capitol on Martin Luther King's uh, national holiday, for me, are, are direct descendants of the kind of folks that want to lynch and uh, uh, assert white male control again. So I think those forces are still strongly with us uh, and, and her voice was so strong uh, against that. And she, she, whether you were the president of the United States or the local banker and wherever she was, she was going to speak up. So I think that, that that's powerful for me uh, against those kind of forces. And, and I, I just I want to reiterate that it's it's not if you take if you are taking a stand for justice that you take across the board, like Ida B. Wells did then you'll end up having enemies that look like you. There'll be women, there'll be black women, there'll be white women, there'll be men, black and white, because there's just going to be folks who are in opposition to that across the board. And I think that was clearly a part of her plight, that she, she had a lot of folks who should have been much more supportive of who she was and what she was doing, who were actually challenged and afraid of her and probably some of them were just flat jealous. And I think one of the one of the few times that W. E. B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington agreed was they didn't want Ida Wells in any leadership and anything they had to do with. So. Uh huh. <laughs> yes, that probably was the only time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've obviously written an entire book about this woman's legacy, but what would you want people to know the most about? Um, about her legacy? Well, I want people to know that they need to learn about her. If they, if, if they just know the name or they know the name and know she was a journalist or she was against lynching, that's all well and good. But I would like folks to investigate her and see what her message might be to them as they think about who they are and what they're, why they're on this earth. Because I believe that every grown-up person eventually has to deal with what am I doing here and why am I here and what is this life about? And I think that she helps you with engaging those questions. And I think for me, I guess coming uh, as a, I guess from a church point of view, as you said earlier, uh, she could have and at several places. She was poor. Her parents. Uh, were educated, uh, self-educated and uh, skilled people, but she could have ended up just a really 
downtrodden person in Mississippi. Uh, she did not. And then when she got married, her she and uh, Ferdinand Barnett's wedding was on the front page of the New York Times style section when she got married. So as Catherine indicated, she could have just gone into middle class blackness and stayed at home and done a few things. Uh, she chose not to do that, and she listened to the voice uh, of justice in her life, and as Catherine indicated, uh, found her passion, uh, what, what I would call God's voice speaking to her. So I, I want people to understand that whatever uh, generation we find ourselves, there's always going to be captivity. We're always going to have to be dealing with our captivity, and Ida Wells is a great model for overcoming that captivity and not letting it define you and continuing to be passionate and speak and act for justice and uh, God-centered work. As you think about um, those that you are seeing at work, um, whether that be in your community locally or nationally, um, who are the people that seem to be taking up Ida's cause today? Well, when it comes to lynching and, and the interconnection between lynching and slavery and mass incarceration, I think that Brian Stevenson is doing the best job within that particular arena with the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery and the, the, the uh, construction of the Legacy Museum and the memorials to, to remember the lynched. So I, I think that he, he is um, the, the example that just pops in my mind at, at the beginning of that question. And I see his absolute commitment to helping us to understand how those intersections have to be um, talked about and thought about. Yeah, Catherine took mine. I was going to say Brian Stevenson too. I guess he's on, he's on the mind of that, with his movie out, but also his great, great work is such a powerful uh, work he has done both in his work representing people on uh, death row and other uh, prison mm -hmm. cases, but also his museum, the museums that he has done in uh, Montgomery are simply astonishing and uh, moving and powerful. So I, I would agree with Catherine on that. I think he's a powerful voice. Uh, there are groups around the country, I think a lot of groups that are doing great work in prisons and uh, with people that are homeless and on class issues. So I think um, uh, I would say to try to find people on the ground uh, in your community and, and listen to their voices and find ways to work with them and for them. Well, we want listeners to stay connected with your work. Catherine, what's the best way for people to follow you? Uh, the, the website is the Center for Racial Healing, and my email is cmeeks at episcopalatlanta.org. And people can contact me and people can keep up with what's going on at the website. Nibs for you. Uh, I have a website, Reverend Nib Stroop, uh, just with no, that's it. Uh, nothing, R -E, uh, it's R-E-V, Nib Stroop. Also, I do a weekly blog. People want on that. They can contact me by email, nibs.stroop, S-T-R-O-U-P-E at gmail.com. So I'd, I'd be glad for uh, people to join in on that. Um, so that would be great. We'll go out and purchase Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as a prophet for our time. Catherine and Nibs, thank you for bringing us the story and legacy of such a powerful figure whose voice continues to shape our fight for social justice today. Amen. Thank you for having us. You're welcome, and I wish you the best. 
Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.